welcome back to Just Friends. I'm Lula. And I'm Jude. And today we have a very, very, very special guest that we've been hyping up. <laughs> Jude's screaming and kicking his feet. Okay, he is going to do a little introduction. I am. We've been looking forward to having this guest on the Just Friends pod since its inception. Rabbi Angela Warnick Buckdahl is a trailblazer in the world of religious leadership. She's currently the senior rabbi at the Central Synagogue in New York City and was the first Asian American rabbi in North America. She's also the first woman to lead this historic reform congregation with more than 7,000 members and an ever-growing wait list. Angela, we're so thankful for you to be here. Um, welcome to the so pod. Much. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Yay! Out an important piece that I'm also the mom of one of your friends. That's yes! critical. <laughs> Shout out Eli Buckshaw. Shout out Eli. We love you. Um, so I think the reason we, one of the many reasons we are so excited to have you on is because this is now episode 23. So Jude and I have been talking for almost an entire day on this podcast. <laughs> and we have yet to talk about religion, um, mm. which I think at least personally... I feel is because I'm just ill-informed, um, but we are both Jewish, <laughs> Jew hyphen-ish. Yep. Um, I think we would both identify as non-religious, yeah. um, right? I don't really want to speak for you, but I will say I'm not religious. Ethnically, I'm Jewish. My family celebrates Christmas and Hanukkah, and we do Passover, and I think it's much more based on like, mm, kind of continuing traditions that my parents had in their households and much less on the religious side of it. And I don't know, do you want to share, Jude? Yeah, I mean, I'm Jewish, but I don't practice. Um, and I never got even bar mitzvahed. Like I um, had an option to either do get a black belt or go through bar, go through like like temple at <laughs> home and yeah, Hebrew school and see elephant. <laughs> yeah. There <laughs> um, we go. And I I think that in recent years i just have questioned the role i wish really like i wish i think religion played a bigger role in my life um and i mean i hope at some point we can get into that but i never really had that opportunity to pursue it and i'm now kind of this is a cool opportunity to at least talk about it and like think about it and learn more so yeah i'm really excited i frequently hear people talk like that um and i always feel a little bit like i feel bad because i feel like you know you don't you don't have to be like the most learned or the most observant to be, to feel like you get to claim this inheritance. And I, it's, I kind of like imagine it like someone in your family has passed this like very precious book down to you and you could put it on the shelf or you could open it, but it's still yours. And at mm. any point you can access it. You don't have to feel like it's ever too late. And there are lots of different ways to read it. So hmm. I'm happy we're going to open it tonight. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Already such a good quote. <laughs> okay. I think. Um, going off of what you just said, I kind of am curious to hear a little more of your story and how you ended up as a rabbi, like when you really found yourself practicing and especially like, I don't know, you went to Yale. So I'm just kind of interested in like your experience with college and Judaism and religion generally. Okay. So it's big. I mean, if we can start earlier than college, cause I would say that was like a very, um, big part. So I'll just tell you a little bit about my story, which I think helps how, you know, say how I got here. Um, so my father ended up doing ROTC to pay for his college loans and they, they stationed him in South Korea of all places. So my dad moved to South Korea in 1963 or something, met my mom, fell in love and, Aww. and got married. And then my, I was born in South Korea and my sister was born there too. And by the time I was almost four, my parents made a very kind of important decision that we were gonna to move to the United States. And I think it was for two main reasons. One is that it's, um, it's impossible to be Jewish in, in South Korea. And I think they wanted us to be raised as Jews. And I think the second is that um, it's very, uh, there's almost no greater prejudice in Korea than being a biracial Korean child. And so mm. um, I think my parents knew that we were going to have a lifetime of discrimination living there. So we moved to Tacoma, which is where my fa father's family was from. Tacoma, not a huge Jewish metropolis. I'll just say that. But, um, but it was a tight-knit Jewish community that my father had been a part of and his father and his grandfather had been a part of. So I came into this community that in some sense was tiny and a little bubble, 
but it was my bubble. Like I felt like I had roots in this Jewish community. I would not characterize my father as particularly religious or observant. Mm-hmm. He cared about being Jewish. He was culturally Jewish. He celebrated holidays. My grandmother did make gefilte fish from scratch. So <laughs> I had some like, you know, um, creds, but mm-hmm. I would say that, um, you know, he kind of joked that by the time I hit the third grade in Hebrew school, he was like, you know more about Judaism than I did. And mm-hmm. um, my mother is Buddhist. She still is. And I would say that in many ways, she gave me a spiritual longing for the world, like a sense mm-hmm. that there was like spirits invested in the trees and in water and being present in moments. And she had a very sort of spiritual outlook on the world. Um, and then I, and then in some ways I took that spiritual outlook and I had Jewish vocabulary that like my Jewish community gave me. So I probably transcribed a lot of different things in my head and could, probably couldn't tell you exactly where things were. But I was a strange child who like used to sing songs to God on Aww. my swing set and occasionally would intersperse Hebrew words in there because I thought that that was like the sacred language. But I was just the kind of kid who was like finding, you know, I think actually most children grow up extremely spiritual. I think all children are born as spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is they understand that they're connected to something much bigger. I mean, if we're born into the world and we don't even know until we're nine months old that we're not actually actually the same person as our mother, you know, it like takes nine months to get actually differentiated and individuated. I mean, there is, but we actually hold on to that sense that we know we're interconnected with everything. And I think what unfortunately happens is along the way, that feeling gets kind of squashed out of us or people are embarrassed by it or we we give it a language like god that can sometimes look really angry and vengeful or punitive or punishing and we stop believing because it kind of doesn't match the way we see the world but i was very lucky that i grew up in a home and in a community where that kind of thinking was cultivated and celebrated and you know and so you know, we'd go up to the mountain and my mom would talk about like the spirit that was in the mountain or in the trees. And so like, it was just sort of like, that was the way I talked. So I think that my early start in the rabbinate, it was just that I was just a kid that was interested in the in religious questions, in like finding spirituality in different things. And I actually really liked Hebrew school. So I went to Israel for the first time when I was 16 on a program called the Bronfman Fellowship. And that sort of changed like the course of my life. I went to a relatively mediocre public school um, and I liked it, but I don't think it was particularly challenging. And I got to Bronfman and we were doing this learning that was like the most incredible Jewish learning I'd ever done in my life. Not just Jewish learning. It was the most interesting learning I'd ever done. It was making me, it was like, you know, the synapses were firing. And so for me, I was like, oh my God, there's this body of like Jewish text. It's like the most exciting stuff I've ever studied. And it made me, and then I realized there's a job where your job could be just studying this stuff, you know? Mm. And I got so turned on by that, um, even though it was in some ways a very romantic notion of what rabbis get to do. So from that moment on, I came back home at the age of 16 and told my parents, I wanna be a rabbi, which my parents thought was a crazy idea. My mother was like, but why would you do this? <laughs> like when she she felt, as she said, I had three strikes against me. She's like, you know, you're a woman, you have this non-Jewish mother and you look Korean. And she already knew that I had encountered quite a bit of discrimination and frankly, fra- uh, flat out racism in the Jewish community. Um, my mother thought that I would never get a job. I mean, she worried that I would really like n- never be fully accepted. And I think she felt that I was going to devote my life to something that she would always be outside of. And that was hard for her. Um, that being said, I just, I couldn't ever let go of this dream. And in many ways, it's the reason it led me to Yale. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had always thought that I would go to school on the West Coast. But after my Israel trip, it was like, New York or like the Jew- East Coast Jewish community or bust. It was like, wow. I, I had this romantic idea that like East Coast Judaism was like deeply like thick with Yiddishkeit and mm. cultural experiences. And there was selling knishes on the corner of New York. And there was, it was, and, and actually in many ways, that is what New York Judaism feels like to me still, but it particularly was like 30 years ago. And so I, was desperate to come east. And I applied to five colleges on the East Coast and only a couple on the West Coast. And um, Yale was my dream school and I was so lucky to to come. And and when I was at Yale, I was a religious studies major and um, 
was involved in leading the reform Hillel services a little bit. I wasn't super involved in Hillel. For some reason, I felt a little bit outside of it, and I didn't fully always find my place in the Jewish community. I had a lot of Jewish friends, um, but I think that um, there was a part of me that felt that there was sort of like a tribal code that all these Jewish kids from the East Coast knew because they went to the same camps and some of them went to Jewish day school. And I, um, while I was the Jewish representative from a place like Tacoma, like the one who was, you know, lighting the Hanukkah menorah at the Christmas assembly, um, I was one of three Jews in my high school and my sister was the second one, right? Mm -hmm. So there was only, there weren't very many of us. And I felt like I was holding up Judaism. But when I came to the East Coast, I suddenly met, mm -hmm. and to Yale in particular, I met all these Jews who knew so much more about Judaism than I did and were fluent in Hebrew and had been to Israel four times and mm -hmm. all of these things and knew each other and had like, when they played Jewish geography, um, they always had 20,000 people they knew. When I played Jewish geography, Jewish geography never ends up in Tacoma, Washington. <laughs> So I, um, I remember that uh, I very deeply have felt both this experience my whole life of being in some ways um, an insider and an outsider simultaneously. And so um, I used to always feel very um, embarrassed probably mm -hmm. and a little apologetic and maybe inauthentic because of that. And I think one of the things that I came to understand is that virtually every Jew I meet feels like they're an outsider in one way or another. Mm. I mean, even just listening to the two of you, right? Yeah. You know, for different ways you apologize for the way that your Jewishness is not quite what maybe mm. it's supposed to be or what it, and, 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 you know, I met people, part of it is because we're all complex human beings and we're almost always navigating multiple identities, right? Maybe not just being mixed race like I am. Some people just feel like, oh, I'm gay and I'm Jewish. How does that fit in? Or I'm from the South and I'm Jewish or I'm something plus. And many of us have multiple plus plus. And mm -hmm. so when we're doing that, um, it's easy to sometimes feel like you're not inside. And what I really come to understand and appreciate is that might be the most Jewish thing about us. Mm. Jews are outsiders. That's actually been our identity. Literally our name, Ivrim in Hebrew, which means Hebrews. Um, it's the it's the word that comes when Abraham is called to become the first Jew and he has to leave his home and cross over the river Euphrates and he has to actually become a stranger. He can't actually become the first Jew from the comfort of his birthplace and his home. So when he crosses over, that word Ya'avor, crossing over, is the word of Ivrim. So literally, the first Jew is the first boundary crosser. And the ex the 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 experience of being a Jew is to be one who knows what it is to be sometimes on the outside. Mm -hmm. And actually, when we lose that experience of knowing what it feels like to be an outsider, we actually lose something deep about what it is to be a Jew. That's a long answer. Oh, wow. my. That was fabulous. Thank you yeah, so much for was... sharing all of that. Oh, my God. I like need a second. I don't I, even know what to I, respond to yet. I have a few questions that just came up from that. Um, Great. One thing that I was curious that like struck me was um, you talking about the explicit kind of um, you're not a Jew that you kind of experienced. And you didn't mention this, but did you experience that at Yale or was that just more implicitly felt? I was definitely both. I mean, I don't know if you know that there is a Jewish traditional halachic definition of your Jewish line and it's traced through your mother, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's called matrilineal descent. So if you have a Jewish mother... Um, under Jewish law, you are considered a Jew even if you have a Jewish father. However, if you have a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother, then um, the only movement that kind of um, officially uh, accepted patrilineal descent, which happened in the 1970s, so it was about the time I came to America, the reform movement accepted patrilineal descent. Um, and they said, if you have a Jewish father and you are raised as a Jew, then you are fully Jewish. But so you have to know that there were plenty of traditional Jews who like it, they said to me things like, Angela, it's not even personal. It's not about you. This is Jewish law. You're just not a Jew because you don't have a Jewish mother. That was extremely painful for me to hear that. And, um, and, it, and honestly, it, 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 the first time that I learned this was when I was on Bronfman from some of my Orthodox classmates. And, uh, it set off a true existential crisis. You have to know that like, a huge part of my identity was being the Jewish representative. I was the Jew of Tacoma, right? And mm -hmm. um, I was the one who like had to fight to take 
student body elections off Yom Kippur and nobody knew what that was. And I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not actually even Jewish. <laughs> and it was, it was profoundly painful. Um, and I mean, it's probably not that different than other people who feel like they're not able to identify as who they truly believe they, they, themselves to be. For me, this was about around my Jewishness. And, and there is a legal definition under some um, movements, and it's been the traditional definition for a long time. I will say that in biblical times, it was actually patrilineal descent. So mm. it's not like it's been that forever and ever. It used to be that it was, you know, it was Abraham's line and Isaac's line and the male line, and they switched it over. Um, I don't know exactly when it was, but hundreds of years later, right? So, I mean, but the fact is, um, there was explicit language like, without a Jewish mother, you're not really Jewish. And then there were the kind of more coded ways that people sort of said, well, how are you really Jewish? And ways that people would sort of challenge me by just asking questions in kind of ways that were really trying to kind of topple me or destabilize me or make me feel like, well, you don't really know enough or do enough. So um, I, I don't know if I, I, I didn't share this part of my journey, but after about five years of a lot of, um, soul searching and pain and questioning and other things and learning by the way including two more trips to israel and you know studying a lot of judaism and studying hebrew and all of these things i ultimately decided at the age of 21 to do a giur ceremony a giur is what you would probably define as a conversion now i felt like calling it a conversion when i had been a jew my whole life was somehow like um demeaning and i i didn't convert at age 21 so but what we would say about someone who converts in Judaism is it's not that they convert the way we think of sort of the Christian notion of converting, which is like like a complete turn from who you are or a rejection or a, a leaving behind of who you are. In Judaism, when we talk about conversion, we talk about that you are affirming the Jewish soul that you've always had in you. That's mm. what we talk about with people, even who didn't grow up Jewish at all. So for me, when I suddenly thought of that language of Giyur as reaffirming the Jewish soul that has always been in me, I was actually able to embrace the idea in a different way. And in some ways I loved that it would, it, I felt like it honored my mother and her family to say, I'm not the same as a Jew who has two Jewish parents. I've been impacted deeply by my Korean heritage, by my mom's Buddhism. And so I'm actively affirming and choosing my Judaism. And in some ways, all Jews today are Jews by choice. You know, you, you don't have to be Jewish. And so I think that um, I did that ceremony when I was 21 and I tell you, you that ritual ritual when it's done right is so powerful i found it transformative when i came out of that mikvah like all this angst just kind of like washed away mm. um i think it's because that ceremony was actually the culmination of five years of searching as mm. opposed to like the thing that i was trying to fix it with and because of that i think that that's what enabled me to kind of go into rabbinical school with peace and when people kind of challenged me I didn't do the giyur to prove anything to them, but I was at peace. I no longer felt insecure about it. And that helped me in my path. I have a really quick question. Um, I'm just a little curious about how your sister identifies. Mm, it's a great question. So if you were to ask my sister, how do you identify? She would say, I'm definitely Jewish. She does not um, raise her children in the Jewish faith and she's not a practicing Jew. And I'll tell you that my sister had, um, she also went on Bronfman three years after I did. And a couple of things happened. One, um, my sister is a much like kinder, more empathetic, gentle person than I am. She's like a musician and she's got like the spirit of like a deep feeling human being. And she has a more sensitive soul than I have. I think I'm much more of like a fighter. So what happened was, on Bronfman, she actually had this very painful experience where she's musical and she would lead music for the group all the time, regularly. Well, the last week of this program, they invited her to, a few of the kids said, oh, will you lead us in the ceremony of Havdalah, which is the ritual that ends Shabbat. And there's these sing songs and blessings and she was playing guitar and so she, she did that. Well, a couple of the kids in the group who were really traditional came up to her and said, when you say the blessings, instead of saying, Adonai Eloheinu, which means Adonai our God, like, you know, names for God. Please say Hashem Elokeinu. So what I'll explain to you and your listeners is that 
if you exchange Adonai Eloheinu, which are God's names, or there's some simulation of God's names, with Hashem Eloheinu, you're not actually saying a blessing anymore. What you're essentially doing is nullifying the blessing and kind of making it, you know, it's what you'd say if you weren't saying the real prayer, okay? Mm -hmm. So my sister didn't know this, and they, the reason they were asking her to change the words is because they didn't think she was Jewish enough to say the blessings, right? Okay, but they didn't say this to her. And so while she is in front of this group that she has been with for five weeks, and they know who she is, it's not like this is just some stranger. She leads these blessings that are not actually the real blessings. And under their breath, the traditional Jews are saying the true blessings. Mm -hmm. And when my sister finished and someone came up to her and said, do you know what just happened there? Why did you do that? And she said, well, they told me to do this. And when she realized her face, you know, turned red and she felt like she was like publicly embarrassed and humiliated in front of everyone and not even given the respect to be told sort of um, what was happening. And so I think that my sister, her first, it, her first instinct was, you know, as I said, like a, a deep sense of like hurt and shame. And then I think it transitioned a little bit into some anger and some disgust. <laughs> and I think she felt like if if this is what Judaism is about, if people care more about upholding this this letter of the law rather than like the soul of a human being, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And she found she found it so upsetting. And you know that wasn't like her immediate break, but I would say that that was a, a big kind of. Uh, turning point moment it's unfortunate and also like incredibly I don't know I feel understandable it's a kind of awful thing to go through especially when you're trying to find your community Ugh. I guess I wonder how you grapple then with like this experience that your sister went through and also what you just said at least for Judaism about like the the core is understanding the experience of an outsider and like mm -hmm. how do you hold both of those experiences Jewish people not holding that core value um, and putting up law instead and like valuing law over that core value? Yeah, so I think that, um, I think every religion has to have some, you know, some borders, right? And some boundaries. Like if, if you know, if you, if you have water and there's no vessel, you have no shape to it. You have no idea or understanding of like how, how to, how it can shape your life, right? So there has to be some sense of that. At the same time, I think that the Jews have always been boundary pushers, and, and that's certainly been my story myself. And, you know, and I think that, and by the way, Abraham did that, you know, when God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pushed back, said, wait a minute, that's not right. Like, think about our first Jew, like being willing to take God on and say, that's not even ethical, God. Like, how could could you do that and destroy 50 people if there's even like you know if there, if there are even 50 good people how can you do this and, you know i don't know i probably know the story he bargains god down to 10 good people that he shouldn't destroy the city unfortunately couldn't even find 10. but but part of the story is more about the fact that you've got someone who's willing to stand up to god it's very different than um imagining that you are just always just deferential so i think that you have to hold attention between um the humility it sometimes to feel like I don't always know what's best. And the, on the other hand, we've got, we, every human being is endowed because we're in the image of God with a kind of a moral compass and a sense of ethics that I think you don't have to be taught. It's just in us. Mm. And um, when our understanding of Jewish law goes against our own sense of moral ethics, or if it actually hurts the dignity of another human being, let's just use that as a measure. Um, I think what we should say is not necessarily God is wrong. We should say we human beings are not understanding God's law the right way. Um, and mm -hmm. and by the way, there's a long history of this. I'm not making this up as a reformed Jew in 2023. Like <laughs> Jews all along the way have had commentaries and interpretations and the Talmud itself is an entire reform document um, because the Torah was written, you know, long before the Talmud, right? And so. It was written for a primarily agricultural people. It was written at a certain time. Even the Torah, though, in its time, had laws like, for example, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's one of the most famous, famous line. Even then, the rabbis back then said, mm -mm, not supposed to be taken literally. We don't really want you to kill someone if someone else kills. And so they, they actually said, let us help you understand what this language is saying. It's not meant to be taken literally. From the very beginning, the Torah was never meant to be taken absolutely, completely, literally, or many pieces weren't. They, 
they almost never stoned a child for not keeping Shabbat, even though that's literally written there in the Torah. Nobody does that. Okay, so the fact is that over time, we have started to understand the law differently. For Reform Judaism, we came around to it much faster. That Those laws that say, for example, that that gay uh, relationships are an abomination, for example, in Leviticus. We came around to that much sooner than others, but, but many, most others are coming around to say, guess what? We are not, if this, this, we don't believe that human beings are built this way and as an abomination. And if, um, and if that's what it's saying, then we are not understanding God's intention correctly here. So we need to reinterpret that. So it's, I think that there is, um, it's not that I want to say the laws are all gone. I just think that we have to understand them for our time and understand them with a body of commentary that has actually helped those laws evolve over time. Um, Cause I have this sort of fundamental belief that human beings actually do progress in some way. And, um, and that's, uh, and that's a good thing. So I think that that's the way we, we need to think about it. Um, I don't really know how to relate this yet, but I think Jude, a question that you really wanted to talk about is whether religion makes people happier. And for some reason that keeps coming up in, I don't, I think just the way you're talking about the soul and the spirit of it all and connecting to that versus like the law. And I also think the way that you're talking about teaching religion is very interesting to me. And for some reason, my brain is making connection between like teaching religion and teaching a kind of thought belief and I don't know, like overall well-being. I don't know, Jude, if you have more to elaborate on your question with that. I mean, that was well said. I just <laughs> will add that I've read studies that have like come to consider that religious folks are more happy than people that aren't and it, they don't know if that's specifically because um of correlation like typically religious people are often like have a very strong community and they're practicing staying in the moment and they're practicing gratitude and there's a lot of like philanthropy so that might be the result of why they have a higher well-being but i i kind of think it might be more I have so many answers for this one. Oh my Woo! God, I don't know where to start. Um, I mean, I love this question. I, I think, so there, I wanna give it a couple different frames. One is I don't think that religion always makes people happier. I think that there are some religious practices that can actually be very punishing and make people feel um, immoral and bad. Um, I think if you grow up gay and you're Catholic and you, know, and, and you feel like you are um, uh, you know, just a sinner, I think that that can be extremely hard, right? Um, so, but I, I would say that if you orient a religion from a place that actually fundamentally sees the world as a, as a fundamentally good place and that God is fundamentally a good force and that human beings are fundamentally born good, and, and then you structure a community around those beliefs. I actually think that that is very key. I think it's very different than a religion that is operating under the fact that people are inherently sinful and actually have to be like constantly guarded and, and punished in order to be right. And that the world is actually inherently um, a dangerous and unsafe place. And you have to protect yourself against these things. And the only thing you can work towards is a life after death. Um, I, I think that... I, so I think a fundamental orientation is a religion. And by the way, every religious tradition has variations within this. I'd say there are forms of Judaism that see the world and practice in a much more punishing, bad way. Mm -hmm. And there is there are forms of Judaism which see this much more from a place of like, we know you coming from a pure place and we all make mistakes. My sense is that when you come from that place of um, belief in the inherent goodness of the world and human beings and God, my sense is that that makes uh, people generally happier than the than the other way of seeing the world. Okay, so that's one frame. That's my um, two cents. I remember going to a fantastic lecture that were that was for Yale parents once. That um, uh, our our your dean of arts and sciences, um, Tamar Gendler, taught, and um, she was talking about sort of the fundamental condition of human beings is that they have these sort of like principles by which they want to live and who they think they are. And then their urges and all the other things that make them do things that are not always aligned with who they think they are or who they want to be or their moral code. And that tension is actually one of the fundamental tensions of our lives. The more that our lives are aligned, our actions are aligned with our intentions and our values and our morals, the happier we are. Mm -hmm. So she gave 
three examples of things that help people align their emotional like output and their value system. They're into, you know, those, the, the things that are kind of subconscious with their consciousness. And, um, the, the first was, um, around habits, like, okay, you might not already be a charitable person, just fake it till you make it basically. Like if you do the actions, you're going to actually be that person that you want to be. Um, religious tradition is all about telling you to do things, even if you don't, especially in Judaism, it's actually, we don't, we don't legislate what you're supposed to believe. We just legislate what you're supposed to do. We actually care more that you give Sadaka than you do it with this like open, generous heart. It's nice to have the open, generous heart, but we actually care more that you actually just do it. So part of what it is, is like religious traditions enable you to have what I would call like, you know, habits of the heart. That's not my view. I think that's, uh, what that, who's that? Bellow, but one of very famous religious sociologists that you essentially create those religion gives you habits of the heart to be the person that you aspire to be. The second is friends that you need a community around you that reinforce those values. You know what it's like. Peer pressure can work in lots of different ways. It can be very, very positive. So you put yourself in a community. It's not just having friends. It has friends who share your values and who reinforce them and who, who value what you value. So you feel good. If you are around a lot of friends who only care about making money, you feel really bad if that's not what you're doing. Right. And so you know what that's like. So community, so religious communities inherently will reinforce and share values with each other. Um, the last is, is making peace with what you can control and what you can't control. Like if you, and I would say that this to me is like a form of humility. And in many ways, what gives you more of a sense of recognizing what is within your control and not than a belief in some higher power. And I'm not trying to push God. What I'm trying to push is that when people understand that there's so much that is more mysterious than we can ever understand. When we when we can let go of what is beyond our control, we're actually happier when we can make peace with what is not within our control to have. And that to me is a religious stance encourages that kind of humility and, mm -hmm. and depth of understanding. So when you have that alignment, you are a happier person and religion is built to give you that alignment. Now, not all religions do it that well, but I think at their core, religions are trying to help people align who they want to be with with what they're doing in their lives and they have tools like spiritual technologies to help us do that that's what all those things are those are spiritual technologies and um and so that's why i really believe that the thing that would help our society today which is lacking in meaning seriously lonely and isolated um there are more deaths of despair than any other time in american history um people don't even feel like they have like one good friend they could talk to about something real, like some 50% of Americans don't feel like they have a true friend to talk to. I mean, you guys have such a gift with each other and I know you do with others as well. <laughs> that is the, that is like the fountain of like happiness in life. Right. Um, I do think for those who don't have it, religion is set up to help us with all of those things. Um, but people have turned away from it at record paces. And I don't think it's coincidental that people's great unhappiness these days is connected to hmm. the uh, diminishment of religious life in America. That was like the most eloquently put answer to that question I could have ever imagined. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, I don't know. I think, I think it's really a shame that I think, like you said, a lot of religions don't seem to do that core goal that well. And there's a lot of like, um, I don't know. I think unfortunate. I don't even know the word I'm looking for. I don't think it's practice, but I think there's a lot of like ammunition that is like very negative. And I yeah. think it's a lot of guilt and shame. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think it's really, really helpful and valuable to think about the alignment piece. I think that makes a ton of sense. I don't know. That's like all we talk about is how to find peace with like not being able to control anything ever. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, and I, I can answer one other thing that I think is um, key to this. And it, uh, I highly encourage you to read this book called The Science of Awe, A-W-E. And um, it's by this Berkeley sociologist um, named Daher Keltner. And it came out this year. Anyway, he talks about, um, he studied awe across 26 different countries with like thousands of people, okay? So he he's basically creating almost a taxonomy of what he calls like the eight wonders that, that inspire awe 
in people, no matter where you are in the world. It's like just a human experience. So, um, and he names eight different kind of categories that inspire awe. And my, take a guess at what one of them is. It, I'm sure you've experienced awe yourself. Think about it. What what inspires awe for you? Oh my gosh, I feel like you're a teacher right now. <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> that is what a rabbi is, you know. I know, that's what I mean. Let me think. I'm not trying to trick you. Just no, try yeah. to think of something that you like that, you know, that makes you feel that sense of like, ooh, wow. It makes your jaw drop a little bit. I don't know. I feel like nature makes my I was jaw drop say, a lot. Like nature. Okay. Absolutely. I think a nature is number four on his taxonomy, <laughs> but it's definitely like it. absolutely being on a mountaintop, being at the ocean, even just looking at a flower sometimes. Nature inspires awe. Okay, what else? This is like family yeah. feud. We're missing like the <laughs> top answer. Well, um, I'm I'm happy to just tell you some of them. I mean, music okay. is one of them. Oh, Lula, you should know. You. Right? I should have known. I was going to pivot us to music. Music soon. is a big one. And um, experiencing either birth, that's like the impossible mm. in some ways, right? And death, sort of spiritual experiences can be one. So interestingly, um, number one and two, I wouldn't have guessed. Um, number one is what he calls moral beauty. And moral beauty is like when you um, witness or hear about like the kind of extraordinary kindness or courage or resilience or stamina of other human beings. Like, the, the, like you know, kind of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, you know, or extraordinarily talented people, you see them doing extraordinary things and you're sort of like, awesome like you know and moral beauty um is actually the number one thing that inspires awe in human beings and once you start to think about that category you start to see it everywhere and then the number two one was what he calls um collective effervescence which is a term that i think emil durkheim who's a famous phenomenology of religion guy um i studied him when i was a religious studies major but anyway that's basically about human beings moving together as they were meant to move. And so that's everything from like going to a rave to seeing the wave at a at a at a like football game to like marching bands to marching in a protest. It's like to of course like ritual dance and other kind of movement. But um anyway, once you once you start to think about this, um I was realizing that my whole job, I am in the awe business, basically. Mm. My, everything I'm trying to do is actually to inspire awe for people that, you know, of course there's worship services that are not just spiritual, but musically beautiful, but I'm telling stories and giving witness to moral beauty all the time of families within, within I'm constantly hitting up against birth and deaths all the time. And of course, illness and the moral beauty of people co courageously coming through illness or, or sometimes not and surviving, um, it's it's like I and it's and it's not just that I'm trying to help create those moments. I also just get to be a part of them and observe them. And part of what awe does, it's not just that it makes you feel awe in the moment. It makes you actually feel much more connected to everyone that's in that system with you. You know, um, you know, you see it in a sports team. Why do people who don't know each other at all but are just wearing the same jersey like are mm. high fiving each other and they feel connected, even if just for that moment? And so this sense of feeling more connected to others that are part of the experience and also to something much bigger than yourself is what awe inspires in us. So I think that um, that is also what religion can do for us at its best is help create moments where you just have more wonder and awe in your life. So I have to add on to one piece of that, which is, so I don't know if you know this, but I'm a magician. I don't know if that was well, I didn't know that. Um, so I also am in the business so cool. of law. <laughs> um, you are, yeah. And I remember writing an essay in high school about how I found magic to be a religious experience for myself. Like mm. I had like the texts and I had the rituals and like I had community. And so I kind of like mm. found kind of a spiritual connection to magic. Um, and I think the reason I loved it so much is that I was able to give awe and witness moments of awe, but it did feel totally. false. It felt fabricated, mm. right? Because I'm doing the tricks. I know what's actually happening behind the awe. And I guess you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I kind of am curious if you could expand more on your relationship with God for yourself, because like, I don't know, it's just like, I, I think recently I have been like, oh, I want to experience all of those wonderful things you've been describing, but I kind of get stuck because 
I don't believe in God. And so like what happens when I get to the thing, which is like, how do I can kind of trick myself into awe, right? Like, or <laughs> like, I just kind of get stuck there. It's like when, when like you, you've just said all these beautiful things to, about religion, yet I still feel like to be able to quote unquote deserve again, those, those things mm. I have to believe. And I don't, mm. and I don't know how to grapple with that. I agree with Jude. I second the question. Mm. Um, I'm not really sure why, like, kind of this, it was just a given for me that there was just sort of belief in something bigger than myself. And I didn't mind calling it God, even though it, I didn't always recognize it as the God that I was reading about in the Bible, right? But I guess, um, and I actually, I meet people, students of mine, who I think would make fabulous rabbis, for example. And I'll sometimes say to them, think you'd be a great rabbi and the number one answer that they say to me that they don't think they could be rabbis are like i'm not sure i believe in god right and part of me wants to say that's not a requirement i honestly really mean that it's not a requirement for being a good jew it's not actually a requirement for being a rabbi um so but part of it is i feel like tell me about the god that you don't believe in because i probably don't believe in that god either um i'll tell you a little bit about the god i believe in this feeling we're having right now that we're like connecting on some deep level that electricity that is happening right now in this room that makes us feel like, wow, I'm a totally different generation. We've, we've only met each other a couple of times. I'm feeling something that feels deep and powerful. That electricity, Martin Buber would say, that's God right there. You don't have to even make it more than that. Mm -hmm. It's like, he's like, when you have an authentic relationship that's I vow with another human being, it could also be, by the way, with a tree people can have, you know, with other things, but it's mostly with humans. When you have that relationship and, and, and experience each other, that electricity between humans in that in that relationship or in that moment, even that's where God is. So I would say that's a that's a kind of um, God that I can get behind. I would say the other way I think about God is when I, you know, if you look at a beautiful picture, I might ask you, is there an artist of that picture? What would your answer be? If you saw like a beautiful, like Monet and I say, how do you know that there was an artist? How would you tell me that, you know, there's an artist? Part of the way you know that there is an artist is because the art exists. Mm. <laughs> I guess there's a part of me that's comfortable with just saying there is a creator because there's this beautiful world that I'm living in. And so I don't know if I need a whole lot more proof than that. It's just like, there's this thing and I'm comfortable with saying there is a creator. Now, I don't think it's a creator that's like a God in the sky that made it in seven days. I don't I don't believe that literally. This is all a metaphor. It's all just us trying to put language to something which is inexplicable and mysterious. But what I'm willing to do is to suspend um, my, my own need for complete um, depth of understanding and to call the things that I think are beautiful, mysterious, moral, good, powerful. I'm just going to let them all be under the name of God, because in some ways that's the stuff that we can't fully understand why it moves us and um, connects us and makes us feel something. And I guess the reason why I like calling it God is like, it's a catch-all and all of us can connect to the same, the same force. Um, and in some ways I feel like that connects all of us. And I want to be a part of something that would help me be more connected to all of you. And and I'm calling it God. I recognize that there's baggage for that. So if you want to call it the force, or if you want to just say the mystery or the creator, I'm totally like excited for people to just give it other names and, and, and to think of something else. But part of it is like, I mean, just think about like, why do human beings, like, it doesn't matter if you're from the middle of a, a tribe in like some desert and, and in New York, like why, when we all see a sunset, human beings don't have to be trained to think that that's like, ah, and to have awe, like yeah. there's something that connects us all. Yeah. I'm willing to call that God, but we could call it something else. But I just think that there is, um, I guess that's as close as I can get. It's not a super clear definition of God. And it's certainly not a God that's like watching everything you do and making a list of your sins and, you know, putting you in the book of life. Like we talk about on the holidays. Like, I recognize that's a really hard God to get behind. Um, but when I do talk about it, that's all metaphoric. Um, and I think we have to kind of suspend that sense of it being a literal description. I think based on that, I like believe the same exact things you do. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, good. Okay, not, there we like, go. Find <laughs> that God. Before, like, 
the we started recording. Jude and I were just like casually prepping, and we were like, mm, I don't really know what to say. I believe in. I think we've both kind of loosely been saying we're agnostic, and I'm mm-hmm. like shrugging my shoulders. I don't even really know. Like we both have been like, there's something. There's something up there or down there or somewhere that's more powerful and don't know what it is. And I think the word you used was baggage. There is a ton of baggage with calling something God. And I think, I don't know. I even like don't even feel comfortable fully saying that yet, which I think is just something interesting for me to unpack. But everything you just said, I completely resonated with and felt and agree Mm. with. I think I've been like looking to name it. I also think that I personally struggle with institutions telling me what I can and cannot do. I mean, I think mm. we talk a lot about that at Yale, like how I get so frustrated when they're trying to like put their hands on my study abroad program because I'm trying to leave to be able to have freedom from this institution, right? right. And like God, I feel like is kind of the epitome of like in my head, these like rules and laws and like someone putting structure and imposing structure mm-hmm. on my life. But when you put it that way, it's actually really freeing like to be able to say hey mm-hmm. there are these beautiful things around us that are kind of unexplainable and instead of trying to like sit with this kind of angst about why they're unexplainable and oh my god it's so scary and like just being like wow like kind of being grateful for them all and like appreciating them for what they are like i can get behind that totally mm. so i like that well i mean i love that and i think you know um i i do feel like there's been a lot of damage done in the name of God. Um, and I think part of that has been honestly, like who gets the microphone and gets to speak for God in America. It's, it's definitely not a God that I would stand behind. You know, we're hearing messages that God, you know, won't let you get an abortion. (laughs) God hates gay people. Uh, God wants you to own guns. I mean, it is, it's unbelievable. Uh, in my mind, when God is used that way, that's like breaking the commandment, taking God's name in vain. That honestly mm. feels like that's using God in, in, in vain. Um, I think, you know, I like I like what you said, Lula, about just, you know, like how you think about um, creating your own personal relationship that's not about this God. And mm-hmm. yeah, I encourage you to keep thinking about it. And, and you don't have to give it that name, but to tap into that thing that's bigger and mysterious, the stuff that we don't have control over, I don't know. I think that's a healthy thing. Yeah, I think it it should be exciting. I think now it is. I think before it was just kind of daunting. Um, yeah, but I think, I don't know. I think you've inspired me to like lean into thinking about it, which is awesome. Awesome. Speaking of, that was an accident. Let me transition really quickly. Okay, I've been dying. I know we don't have that much time left, but I've been dying to talk to you about music. And it happened to come oh, up cool. in your awe, um, one of the eight awes. And I don't even know how to introduce this. I guess I'll say Jude was watching one of your sermons, right? Oh, my gosh, your voice. Your voice is crazy. Uh, it's, Just on a, it's ta- <laughs> on a talent level. Yeah, major awe. Um, uh, thanks, guys. And I think something I'm very, very interested in is... The way you conduct, I don't even know if conduct is the right word, but engage with um, the people in the audience. And we've like talked about this super, super briefly, but Jacob Collier. <laughs> and the oh, way- <laughs> I'm obsessed with him. Has he like told you that? Yes. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of want to hear more about how you engage with music and the awe of that. And... I don't know. Jacob Collier, if people listening don't know, is this really, really, really wonderfully talented musician who's kind of increasingly blowing up. Um, I think especially for his understanding of music theory and in his live concerts, he kind of makes the crowd into these crazy harmonies in a way that I don't even know how to describe. But I'm just want to hear like any quick thoughts you have on music. I don't even know. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, so music is just, it's just like one of the great wonders of the life. I mean, I don't know why it makes you feel something. It's inexplicable. I frequently think it's, I think it's my primary spiritual language for sure. Um, And what I mean by that is it's not just like my primary way of expressing myself spiritually, but it's my first way that I can connect with people. I feel like when I sing, 
and sing with people in particular, like that's the quickest way to bring God into the room. Um, just like no, no question. And for us to feel connected with each other. And when I think about what I'm doing, when I'm leading services, for example, I'm not conducting exactly, I'm not like literally conducting, although I tried an experiment over the, over Rosh Hashanah of conducting the congregation and, yeah. and it was really fun, but <laughs> I think of myself much more as an energy worker. Um, what I mean by that is I am, I think when I'm really in the flow, uh, like when I'm at my best and I'm like in the flow and super present, I'm deeply reading the energy in the room. And then I'm trying to think about like what, what the room needs. So sometimes people come off of the street in New York on a Friday night and they are just like buzzing and like still carrying all their work and they're, you know, they're just kind of. And, and then I think that my job is actually to help people bring a little Shabbat peace and to kind of just bring that energy down a little bit. But I also sometimes feel like sometimes we come out of something that feels really hard or people are really lethargic or whatever. And it's, yeah. it's just like a gloomy day. And then I feel like part of my job is to actually bring that energy up in some way. And, and, and um, there's no better way for me to kind of like move the energy of a room than with music. And, and I, and that means that sometimes I'm in the middle of a service and I literally will turn to my music director and, and I have like a band on Friday nights. You have to come and visit sometime, but I've got like five instruments, four singers. I'm playing guitar sometimes. And mm. I've got two unbelievable cantors at my synagogue. And, um, and sometimes I will just turn to him and say this next thing that we've got, or our closing song we planned it's not the right mood. It's like totally the wrong energy. And, and I'll just turn to him and say, we got to switch to this one. And luckily he's just a genius and he can just do that on the, on the spot. But I, I guess part of that means you have to be constantly aware of that. And I don't, I don't know that that's something that is easy to teach. And it comes from a deep um, sense of presence, really like being fully attuned to the moment, like deeply in it. But I would say that that's, that that is like uh, uh very powerful. I think music is super powerful for kind of bringing them together. They, they've done all these studies where people, when they sing together, they actually start to breathe together and feel mm -hmm. more interconnected. I mean, there's just magic stuff that happens through, through music. So I don't even know where to go, but Jacob Collier, he both inspires awe because his, yes, he is such a genius. He is such a freaking genius. <laughs> and he's like putting like ninths on top of chords yeah. and doing these harmonies that are so complex that like, I just kind of am just like in awe listening to it. But then what he does with the audience is he really, he really is conducting the energy, like literally of that room. And, and, and then when they feel like they get to be part of making this beautiful music, it's, it's transcendent. Yeah. I think it's a spiritual experience for people in that room. I mean, it's a spiritual experience for me just to watch it. Yeah. And I'm not in me on YouTube. I'm like ascending. I know. Yeah. Like it's a wow. It's crazy. Okay. That was my last dying question. I have one <laughs> last question. So I knew about you before I even met Eli because my mom is a fan and it has sent and got it sent by a friend. And like, you kind of have become like this really important figure, not just for your, like your synagogue, but like for people around the world. Mm. Um, and I mean, just talking to you, you are so eloquent and I've listened to you and you have a great voice, but I'm curious, like, I feel like there's something more. I think that you tap into something that, people are all needing right now and i'm curious if you've reflected on what that is and what you bring mm -hmm. as a rabbi um yeah i don't know how to answer that <laughs> i mean um <laughs> i think um i mean what while i think about this for a minute because i think i have to think about it i mean if your mom sent you something or or if she responded what do you think she's responding to I mean, I was struck by the kindness and compassion you bring to these words and to these beliefs. Mm -hmm. I think that, like, I, I've i seen, like, I mean, I don't really know that many people that are, like, actively practicing religion. I think that there has been a big drop-off in recent years. And it's because there's a lot of hate that at least is in the news about religion. Um, mm -hmm. And I think we've talked a lot about this in this pod. Um, but to hear someone come up on stage and just be so authentic and and thoughtful and welcoming like even just how the way we started this pod like i felt a little bit embarrassed and ashamed um mm. talking to you even though like you were willing to come and like <laughs> i understood the whole but i felt weird like and and within the first minute or two i felt so welcomed as myself um mm. so i mean that's kind of what i would say for you i don't know <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's so nice. I mean, I think you hit on a word that to me is like probably the most key, which is just authenticity. And um, I think that I was given the gift as a like from my family of origin to like truly inhabit my authentic self and um, and also to kind of look at the world as like a beautiful place with a lot of and to see human beings as remarkable people i mean like listen it, i <laughs> i've had a really hard work week at work i can't get into it all um and i would just file this under the joy of working with humans it's like it's been <laughs> like a lot um but when it comes down to it ultimately like i am constantly amazed and inspired by other human beings and um and my work puts me into contact with people often not at their best places but still i i am constantly seeing people like rising to the occasion or taking those struggles on. And I guess it is like that moral beauty. And, um, and I believe in humans. I just believe in them. And I believe in, in like, I, and I'm just a very hopeful, optimistic person. And I think there's some way that that is transferred in with a sense of like deep, uh, regard and respect for people that like, I think is conveyed. And I think, I don't know why that should be such a, it seems so basic. Um, so I'm not sure if that is really all that it is. Um, that and I have, I, I think one of the things I would say is that I think it's very joyful. Like I love, I love Judaism. I love, I love, I love life, but I love Judaism. I love God. I think I told you that in the beginning. I love my family, you know, like I love my friends. I mean, I think that there is something about, um, someone has, you know, many times people will come to services on Friday night and say, wow, I didn't know Judaism could be so joyful. So mm. like there's, there's something also that just has to be about joy. And that's not like a simple, like, oh, I'm happy. There's like, there's a deep kind of spiritual joy that is important for the world to kind of move forward and for people to be their best selves. So I, I think probably it's some combination of authenticity, joy, respect, love for human beings and an optimism for the world. I, I think that's what I'm trying to share with Jewish language, which I think is a deep wisdom tradition that I'm really lucky when I don't feel like I have anything good to say, I can find something good to say that our ancestors said much better. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I guess that's what I'd say coming to kind of close this up. That whole wisdom tradition belongs to both of you. Oh. And I just, I want you to know that even if you feel like you didn't really learn it, you're not observing the laws, worry less about the laws. Just know that there is like a kind of guidebook for living a life of meaning and, and joy and awe and um, spirit and music. And it belongs to you. It's your inheritance and you can do with it what you want, but it, there's, it's never too late to for it to become part of your life and and not to apologize if you want to do this part and not do this part oh my gosh wow. yeah <laughs> wow i kind of want to hear what you're looking forward to since you've had a hard work week i'm just interested mm. well i don't know i mean if i were to go i could answer this a couple of different ways I, I think i could say first that you know i have two graduations coming up um my i'm not just my <laughs> My oldest son, Gabriel, graduating from college, <laughs> but my youngest child, Rose, graduating from high school. And it's, um, you know, we think of those as like, you know, when you're in college, you think that graduation is all about you. But guess what? When you're a parent, graduation is all about you. <laughs> and I think this is a major life cycle for me. I've got my first child totally launched and I've got my last child leaving the house. And it's like... Um, I both am looking forward to it and it's super bittersweet, you know, and it's a major change for me. And I don't feel like I'm old enough to be an empty nester, but I'm going to be in six weeks. And that, all of that is like, um, kind of amazing. And I'll just, you know, I'll just say that like, actually, um, nobody makes me happier in the world than like my OG crew of five in my family and time with them is like Aww. absolutely my favorite time of like my life. And, um, and I feel so proud of like the kind of adults they've all become. And so, you know, I know I'm going to be spending a lot of time with them for all these upcoming graduations and celebrations around them mm -hmm. and all of that. And I guess that's, that's what I always look forward to the most. That was lovely. That was perfect. I'm glad we did that. Yay. 
Oh my gosh. Okay, everyone. I think that's the end of the episode. That is. Okay. Maybe um, my favorite ever. I I, I have I have so many things to think about. So I'm really like I feel I'm so grateful again. Like this was awesome. Yeah. Like, really appreciative. Thank you so much for listening, you all. Um, we'll see you next week. Yay! Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.